good morning, everyone. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about my high school experience. Now, uh, if some of you might remember that I, I wasn't exactly super popular in high school. Well, the truth is, I got to go to two high schools, which is the equivalent of like witness protection when you're in high school, because I just tanked my first year. I had no friends. I embarrassed myself. It was just terrible. And then I got like a brand new start at a new school in a new town. So no one knew me, so I got to start over. But part of starting over is moving all your stuff. So uh, we were part of a huge family, uh, really big family. So we've got like seven of us. And, and we, we're kind of all hoarders. And so we had a lot of stuff. Have you ever been a part of a move where it doesn't matter how much stuff you carry into the truck, there's just more stuff in the house? Where it just seems like it doesn't matter how many boxes you carry out, there's like a closet somewhere that's creating new boxes and flinging them out into the rest of your house. Well, this was that kind of move. It didn't matter how, how much work we put in, there was still the, the lion's chair in front of us. And so we actually, it took us like two days to move. It took a long time. And so we had friends and family, we had people local, we had people from out of town, all getting together to help us. And so we, we finally got into our new house, which was about half the size of our last house. So as you can imagine, it was just a, a labyrinth of boxes stacked on top of each other. And, and you basically, we all just kind of had to sleep in one room. And so there was one night, just the, right after we got done moving, since we were kids, we don't necessarily like just fall asleep when we're tired. We stay up and talk. And so there was four of us. We were all in high school. And we were all just kind of sitting around. It was my two sisters, Heather and Michelle, and me, and my friend Jason. And uh, we're all just kind of sitting around talking, laughing about the day, talking about movies, whatever high schoolers talk about. I don't remember. But we were talking, and all of a sudden, uh, my sister Heather comes back into the room carrying this box, more like a crate. Okay? So she comes into this room carrying a crate, and in she reaches and pulls out a bottle of whiskey. That's scary, because we're all in high school. She's like, look what I found. And, and, and I'm mortified, because like three years prior to that, I was like getting really serious about Jesus, and I was following him, and everything was super black and white, and this is definitely in the black category. So my sister's like, look what I found. She shakes it around, like half the bottle it sloshes. And so she like, she's holding it, and they're joking about it, and then they start like daring each other. My two sisters and one of my best friends in the whole wide world, good Christian people, start daring each other to taste it, to take a sip, to take a drink. And so they're passing it around, and then finally one of them takes the dare, and they're like, they taste it, and it's like, wow, that's really bad. And then they take another taste. And then, uh, uh, that was Heather, and she hands it to my sister Michelle, and she just goes, throws it back. And I'm like, Guys, I am telling mom right now. Because when you're like 14 years old, the only option you have, the nuclear option is to tell. Okay, so I, I'm like, guys, I am telling mom. So I get up and, and I go out to where mom and dad are sleeping. And I, and I shake mom awake. And, and I, I didn't even bother with that because I know that mom's going to be really mad. She's going to get him. And so I, I shake mom awake and I say, Mom, you'll never believe what, the, what they're doing. You have to come here. And I'm like shaking at this time because I'm like, my sense of justice has been violated. Okay, so there's good people in my life doing this really bad thing and they won't stop. Okay, so I, I just push the button and I'm like, I have to, to send in the nukes. I have to send in the heavy guns. Send in mom. 
Okay? So mom goes in there. She goes, what are you guys doing before she sees anything? And then they explain to her that, you know, we just found this bottle of whiskey and we were drinking it. And mom goes, oh, she takes the bottle of whiskey and drinks it herself. Do you see this face? That's the face I had for like 30 minutes, it felt like. Because, okay, my sisters and my best friend are already doing something that I consider to be evil. Okay? They're underage. It's wrong. All right? And then, and then my mom comes in, the heavy, the one that's supposed to end everything, the, the one that's supposed to like bring in the heavy artillery to end everything, make everything right. She becomes a part of this. And, and, and I can't help but just have this posture of, what is wrong with the world I'm living in? You know? And, and, and as I'm standing there, like probably a lot like this, just they all turn to me and start laughing. Because what I didn't know was earlier in the day, they had found an empty bottle of whiskey. They knew that I was a legalistic little high schooler. And they said, I know a way to push Adam's buttons. So they filled it with apple juice. Okay? They were all in on it. Okay? So, so then when they get it out, Mom was in on it. She knew I was going to come wake her up. And so they were just laughing at me. And that did not help my situation. But eventually I laughed about it. It took only about 10 years. So I'm laughing about it now. Um, But see, the thing is, there are often times in our lives where we run into situations where we're just like, what is going on with the world? And and there are sometimes that there's not apple juice in the bottle. There's sometimes, oftentimes, that it's a real thing. That, that elicits that response in us. There is real wrong in the world. Our world is broken. If you're looking for, to fill in the blanks on your notes, that's the first blank. Because our world is broken. Um, it, there are people out there doing terrible things to other people right now. I mean, it, all you have to do is look at the news. You hear about people across the ocean who are uh, cutting off people's heads because they believe in something different than they believe, uh, who, are, who are burning down villages, women and children, because they don't believe in Muhammad and, and, and his Allah. Okay, there are people there doing that, which is terrible, atrocities. That's evil. And then there are people here who, in response to something that they perceive to be wrong, Are they themselves perpetrating wrong? I think this is what the definition of riot violence is. I don't know if you heard about what's going on in Ferguson, but there are people burning down uh, shops that had nothing to do with any shooting. There are people getting shot who their only crime is being a police officer. Uh, There are people getting hurt there right now because of something that happened two months ago. See, people feel like they need to respond to evil, and so they're kind of taking justice into their own hands and and creating more evil. There's more wrong. There are people in this country, by the thousands, that are today, this weekend, this week, this month, right now, the world you live in, being bought and sold as property in the sex trade. They've never been given, some of them have never been given the opportunity to even have an identity apart from that. Uh, It's it's evil, guys, and it's always been this way. And and we look at this broken world, and uh, we can't help 
but have, you know, this, this face of, what are you doing? Why would you do that? But then what happens when we're the one that is perpetrating the evil? Can we have that posture towards our own heart? I sometimes do. You know, when I do something really wrong and then I look back on it, I'm like, what was I thinking? We're there. It's happened to us. And see, that problem exists for everyone. There's about 7 billion people on this planet, maybe a little bit more. And everyone has to answer this question, why is there evil in the world? Because there are a lot of folks that are outside of the, the family of faith, that are outside of the church, that, that they hate God. They hate the idea of following God. They hate the idea of organized religion. And a lot of times it's because they see evil and they say, well, if God was good, he would do something about it because he would be motivated out of goodness. And if God was powerful, he would do something about it because he could. So they say, well, evil still exists in the world. So either God is not good enough to try to stop it or he's not powerful enough to succeed. The question is, why isn't God doing something about the yuck in our world. So then they just assume that he's not there and they live their life perpetrating the very evil they hate because they're human. We all do. So I want to I share with you guys uh, an answer that is part of the answer, the bigger answer to this question because it's this really complex issue. It's not like I can just provide an answer and say the number's 42, and you guys say, oh, okay, write that down, and then everyone's happy. It's a very complex answer, and so I'm providing a, a perspective. If you, if you want to share another uh, answer to the problem of evil that you've heard, please come talk to me after the service. I love talking about this stuff. But I'm going to share uh, what I think is our best answer. Uh, because we have a story. And, and to tell this story, I want to read an excerpt from one of my favorite books. The book is called Unapologetic, and it's, a, it's an emotional apology for Christianity. It's, it's explaining Christianity from an emotional point of view. Weird, right? But it works. Okay, so <clears throat> he's explaining the problem of evil in the first like five chapters of this book. The first half of this book is given over to all the darkness that's in the world. This is the first time he mentions Jesus, and I want you guys to see if you can catch it, okay? So he says, as Christians... We do not say that all is well with the world and God is in heaven. Instead, we say, all is not well with the world, but at least God is here in it with us. We don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we do have a story. See, when I pray, I am not praying to a philosophically complicated absentee creator. When I manage to pay attention to the continual love song, I am not trying to envisage the impossible to imagine domain beyond the universe. I don't picture kings, thrones, crystal pavements, or any of the possible cosmological updatings of these things. Instead, I look across, not up. I look into the world, not out or away. When I pray, I see a face. A human face among other human faces. It is a face in an angry crowd. A crowd engorged by the confidence that it is doing the right thing. That it is being virtuous. 
But the man in the middle of the crowd does not look virtuous. He looks tired and frightened and battered by the passions around him. But he is the crowd's focus and center. The center of everything, in fact. Because if you are a Christian, you do not believe that the characteristic action of the God of everything is to mold the course of the universe powerfully from afar. For a Christian, the most essential thing God does in time, in all of human history, is to be that man in the crowd. A man under arrest and on his way to our common catastrophe. The next point that I want to share is that Jesus shares it with us. Yes, the world is broken. Jesus shares it with us. Uh, the author of Hebrews, I think, is, says this so beautifully. So if you, if you would do me a favor, please open your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, it says, Long ago, at many times... And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So, in the old days, it would be basically very similar to this. There would be a group of people listening to one person tell them what God said. That was their line of communication to God. And in some ways, he was far off. Because he communicated with the prophets. So there was like Moses and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Elijah. These were all people that shared with the people of God what God was saying. And so, basically, I would tell you, and you would say, okay, and then you try your best to live the week following that. But we live in a different time. A better time, I think. Verse 2. says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, who he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So instead of this third-party communication, God sent his own son, who it says is the exact imprint of of God himself. That, that, that Jesus was not just a representative. Jesus was not just uh, another person talking to a group of people. He was this bridge that was at the same time completely God, made in his exact imprint, but he was also completely human, like you and me. He's an intermediary. It says, now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Later on, he says that he intercedes on our behalf. That he stands before God and he says, yeah, but these people, I love them. Jesus was sent into the world to share it with us. And he did. Now, the only way that this makes sense, in my mind, is if Jesus was actually real. Because otherwise, uh, I would just be playing make-believe. We would all just be telling each other stories that make each other feel good. And at the end of the day, uh, we all just go to Adams. Not Adams, but A-T-O-M-S. Gone. Nothing. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's our destiny. And I, I want to provide a little bit of a defense 
for a common argument against our faith. So, most of human history has always presumed that Jesus Christ was real, that he was born, and that he died. Uh, it wasn't until the 80s, early 80s, that, that a group of people came together and they decided that they would call that into question. And so what they did was they basically took all the evidence and they got rid of all the things they didn't like and then they said, well, here, what we have left, that's definitely a myth. And they used that word, Jesus is a myth. I don't know how many of you guys run into people that tell you that Jesus was never even real, but there are people that believe that uh, on the popular level. Now, um, I'm going to breeze through a couple points here and I don't want you to think I'm just belaboring them or I'm just assuming that I'm correct. But these are the easy points that no one really argues. Um, most people in the historical community, whether they're atheist or Christian, believe that Jesus Christ was a real person. Uh, it's basically undeniable. There was an entire movement that changed the world uh, following one guy. And so if he was a myth, it, he would have to have been a myth that was created in the first generation of people. So it would be a group of people like you and me sitting around in a circle saying, hmm, we should start a religion. We should, how about this? No one here in this room, but let's say that there was this other guy that told us a bunch of stuff, and then we're going to follow him and say that he was real. That's stupid. Okay? The, 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 the very, uh, the concept of it strains credulity. I can't believe that, that, that there was just a group of people that just made it up. And, and yeah, history points to the fact that Jesus existed as a real person. And the fact that he was human and that he died, no one wants to disagree with that. If you're Christian, you don't want to disagree with that. If you're an atheist, you don't want to disagree with the concept that someone was born and didn't die. Uh, that would be a little bit too weird for an atheist. So basically, you want to say that Jesus did die. And historically, it's said outside of Scripture and within Scripture, it's said that Jesus died on the cross. Okay, the only people that argue this point, ironically, are the Muslims. They believe that God's prophet could not be touched, so uh, he only appeared to die on the cross. Actually, God really took him out beforehand. And it was just like an image of Jesus on the cross. Again, uh, I'm going to use the word stupid. Um, I don't mean to offend you if that's your belief, but it is stupid. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's okay to laugh at that. Um, so, we know that Jesus was actually born. And we know for a fact that Jesus actually died. And we can say with, with a lot of accuracy that he died on the cross. And I would like to take it a little bit further and say that we can know confidently that there was an empty tomb. So I want you to do me a favor. Um, I think it's on the screen. Matthew 28, verse 15. <clears throat> I think it's safe to say that there's an empty tomb because someone thought it would be a good idea to make a conspiracy about it. So this is after Jesus was resurrected. This is after the, empty, the tomb is empty and the soldiers who are guarding the, the, the tomb that he was in, they go before the leading council and we read that, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they, the council, gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Read a lot. They gave a lot of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So basically, you've got this situation that happened. I'm going to say that the tomb was empty. And there were two people that were responding to this. There were people that were uh, following Jesus up until then. And they were, at this point, in disbelief. They were like, holy cow, what is going on? Jesus is gone. Maybe some of them were afraid someone did take the body. And then there was another group of people that knew that there were troubling implications of a dead person not being dead anymore that disagreed with them. And these people were so motivated against Jesus that they killed him. And they were so motivated against Jesus that once he was back, they tried to institute a cover-up. Okay? And to this day, there are basically two categories or two arguments that people outside of our faith make about this event. Two alternative explanations to what we know is true. So the two uh, arguments are that the disciples must have been liars. Okay? That these, the twelve disciples, they conspired together. They were like, wow, we had a good thing with this Jesus thing, but it's not here anymore. So they did steal the body. And then they dumped it somewhere, hid it. I don't know. But they, they made it go away. And then they just lied about seeing Jesus. Okay? They just lied about it. They just said, well, we saw Jesus and, and he told us that, you know, we're awesome and we're in charge of everything. So, good. I don't think that argument holds up. And this is why I think that. Because of those 12, all but one were killed because of this claim. All but one of them. The only one that died of old age was John. Everyone else died, most of them gruesome deaths, defending the truth that, that this happened. Now, uh, let's postulate an idea here, guys. Uh, let's think. Uh, what's a lie we could tell as a group? Um, okay, so last service I said that I did a cartwheel on stage, but that's really believable because I'm so fit. So um, let's say something else. Let's say that President Barack Obama joined me on the stage here and said, uh, this Adam guy, he's awesome. He's the new president. Okay. I wouldn't mind being president. Can you guys all tell that lie for me? Can you? Okay. So that's what we're going to do. When we go out this week, we're going to tell everybody we know that I am the president of the United States. Okay. So if someone says, what? Really? Because that's a pretty extraordinary claim. And, 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 and so someone said to you, no, he didn't. You, being my friends, would say, yeah, absolutely, because you're lying for me. All right? So let's say for a second that this was your employer saying, did he really? Because if he didn't, I'm going to fire you. Ooh. It's getting a little bit harder to defend the truth, isn't it? If there's consequences for standing up for it. So take it a little step further. If they said, I will kill you unless you say this didn't happen, unless you say Adam Tibbs is not president, would you die for that lie? I wouldn't. I think it's basically impossible for us to die for any lie 
Yet, there were at least a dozen people, none of them broke their story, that all died professing that Jesus died and rose again. So they couldn't have been liars. Now, another thing that uh, people say about the early disciples is that they were just crazy, which is actually possible. Um, There are crazy people in the world. Uh, You're probably looking at one. Hallucinations happen. Uh, People see things all the time. I I knew a a friend of mine had a fever a couple months ago, and she said that the, the, the news, the weather team from the news was in her kitchen cooking dinner for her. Okay? She was so feverish, that's what she saw. And that's, I mean, we've all had fever dreams. So maybe all the disciples, when they were talking about how Jesus died and how he rose again and how they saw him, maybe actually they were just a little bit crazy. Well, I want to read you guys um, a section out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in it, uh, Paul gives a pretty succinct summary of some of the appearances of Christ after he died. Um, There are many others, guys, and we know a lot of them, but I'm going to focus on these ones. He says, For I delivered to you, and this is verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and he, fir- he appeared first to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, Jesus didn't just show up to a secret room of people. Secret, off and away. He appeared to all sorts of different people at all sorts of different times. And at one time, he appeared to over 500 people that were still mostly living. So, let's say that that thing uh, I started telling you guys, now you get to be the skeptics, I told you guys that 20 years ago, here at North Hills, uh, let's see, who was the preacher here at North Hills 20 years ago? Was it Dick Young? I think it was. Uh, Pastor Dick Young actually brought me on stage as a nine-year-old boy and, and said, hey, uh, our current president, who would have been Bush, he's terrible. This little guy's president. What, and then he also said that he gets to stay president. So I'm still president. So um, let's say that that happened, and I told you guys that right now. What would you do to disprove me? Yeah, Joseph. 35. But what I would do is I would go talk to someone that was in the room 20 years ago. And I'd say, what happened? And, and the, the entire account of this, okay? In Acts chapter 2, I believe it's verse 32. Uh... Peter is standing in front of an entire crowd of people. Some of them, it would be really convenient if he was a liar. Uh, 2.32. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. These were public claims. They were diverse claims made by several different people. It is impossible 
for a series, a long series of people to have the same hallucination over a long period of time. Especially given the numbers that we're given here. So, the most compelling answer, given the historical evidence and, and the narration behind it, is that Jesus actually lived, that Jesus actually died, that he actually uh, left the tomb, and it was actually because God raised him up again. As hard as it is to believe, because it's miraculous, Jesus is real. And so that, la- that third blank there, I want you to, to write this. And, and underline it, circle it, whatever it takes for you to focus on this word. Jesus is actually real. Like, really. He is not a fairy tale that we tell each other to make each other feel better about life. He is a historical figure rooted with uh, forensic evidence. And I think it's a compelling case. So let me ask you this. How many of us live like Jesus is actually real? And and I'm I'm right there with you on this one. Because I suspect that it doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. There have been moments, maybe this last week, where you took action or you were thinking things in a world where Jesus wasn't actually real. That he didn't actually come to die for sins, that he's not actually in charge. He's not actually looking after things. Maybe you tried to take his place, save the world. How many of us live like Jesus is actually real? I have to admit that um, I only hit that mark occasionally. And I'm trying better. I'm trying to live out what I believe. And that's what the early uh, disciples of Christ, the ones that wrote the Apostles' Creed, um, were trying to do. They were trying to write out what exactly it was that they believed so their actions could correspond to it. Now, this was like 300 years separated, but this is what had been passed down to them. And so when they say things like, I believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, they're making several different claims and their actions should follow. So... Let me tell you a story about Jesus and what a difference his presence makes when he is actually a real person and we let him be a real person. This is in John chapter 11. Uh, Verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Okay, so this is Lazarus. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, we all know that, but I want to point out that in this story, he's tying together real people that are probably still alive, that in the hearing of this story could say, no, not so true. He's telling the story. He says... that Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Which is a strange segue. It's a causal statement, the thing that he says. He says, so. Uh, <clears throat> he loved them, so he stayed for two days. Yeah, that's kind of my face too, where it's like, mm, What? Already, we can learn from this story so far that Jesus has a plan and no one else has a clue what's going on. No one knows what they're doing. No one knows where this is going. Jesus has a plan, and it's secret right now to even us. Because love does not drive someone to stay. But it does in this story. Then, after, his, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Don't know if you remember. They were going to kill you, and you're going to go there again. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. So he's basically saying he needs to go there now, because they need to see the light. And he should probably be safe as long as he's traveling by day. <clears throat> uh, but if anyone, uh, excuse me, verse 11 says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples, much like you and me probably, uh, totally missed the metaphor. And <clears throat> he, they say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will surely recover. Like, Oh, he's taking a nap. When you're sick, it's good to take naps. He's going to be fine. And uh, I can't imagine, this is probably a moment, like, Jesus probably, or maybe an eye roll. I don't know if you've ever done that, but maybe. Uh, Lord, if he's falling asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he, was me he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So wherever Jesus is going, even if it means death, they're going too. But already we see that there's two realities going on here. Okay, so there's the reality where Lazarus is dying and dead. Spoilers, he dies. Um... There's the reality where, where Lazarus is dead, where the sisters are grieving. And then there's the reality somehow, from Jesus' perspective, that it's good that he waits, that Lazarus is only sleeping, and that he has a plan. Two realities. There's Jesus' reality and everyone else's. And Jesus is the only one that's got a plan. So, now when Jesus came, he, had, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This is a tradition called sitting shiva with somebody. When, when you're in the Jewish community and someone dies or someone's really ill, usually when someone dies, um, you go to their house and you sit in their house with the body and you cry for ten days with them. It's a wonderful thing. If any of you have ever gone through grief, hopefully you have a good friend that will come along and just sit and cry with you. But 
That's what's going on here. Um, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him. But Mary stayed seated in the house. They both heard that Jesus was coming, but Mary stayed seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a rhythm to that. That in the presence of Jesus, she has faith. She says, with Jesus here, this would not be a problem. If you had been here, he wouldn't have even died. He'd probably be serving you coffee right now. I don't think they had coffee at that time, but whatever they drank. He'd probably be serving you refreshments right now. And, and she's like, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she has faith. She has confidence in Jesus. She has no idea what he's doing. But she knows that in his presence that there's life. And she also knows that God gives him whatever he asks. And so, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now see, he's speaking from his reality into her reality. And all of a sudden she hears, she's trying to like help him out. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So she's trying to fit what he's saying into her reality. And he says, uh, okay, let me say it again. <clears throat> I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes or who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So she's got faith. She believes in him. She has no idea what he's going to do. She has small expectations of him. But he's still got his own reality going on. He knows. No one else does. This is my favorite part of the story. Because when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So now, it's not just that Mary knows that Jesus is here. Mary now knows that Jesus is looking for her. So what does she do? She gets up. She rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in, her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly up and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. She obviously left in an emotional state. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, now picture this. It's a story, but it really happened, and, and we've heard it, but it really happened, and I want you to picture this. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's all she could say. Sometimes that's all we can say when we run into these situations. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, the picture here is that she left in an emotional state. She falls at the feet of Jesus. She blurts this thing out, and all she does now is sob and cry. Because death is real, and it really hurts. That's her reality. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved in his spirit and also greatly troubled. Jesus didn't just snap his fingers when he got there or when he got into the proximity. He didn't just say something on his way there like he did with Centurion's daughter. He goes to Mary and is deeply moved and deeply troubled by what's going on. Jesus is not some, uh, some faraway God sitting on a crystal throne somewhere just waiting for you to show up someday to his heaven and ask you the question, what should I do to, or what have you done to get into my heaven? I've heard that phrase before and there's an aspect of truth to it. But that's not the whole picture. Because here we see that Jesus isn't over there waiting for us to come to him. He came to us. He came to us and he unguarded himself against our pain and our suffering and our evil that we're experiencing. He says, yeah, I know. And he feels it with us. And he says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. And it's one of the biggest. Because when Jesus encounters our brokenness, when he encounters our world, I think he weeps with us. As we're standing there looking at the world saying, what is going on? We know at the very least that Jesus shares that with us. He weeps alongside us. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, which is pretty reasonable, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There are a couple of people in the crowd that see that there's two realities going on. There's the normal expected reality and then there's something weird with Jesus. He does different stuff. He's got his own reality. I want to tell you, this is the last blank here. His reality changes our reality. And I don't just mean that as like things <laughs> from God's perspective, like the reality he sees should change the way we see the world. The fact that Jesus is real, his reality as an essential part of who he is, should change our reality, our experience of reality. And there are some in the crowd that see that. They, they say, well, wait, I saw him. I was there. He healed a guy. There was a blind man that could see. He does weird stuff. Maybe something's coming. But I want to make a point here to say that Jesus did whatever he wanted to because he was a real person. And Jesus does whatever he wants to right now because he's a real person. He didn't uh, become real by us believing in him. How many of you guys remember an, an old radio or an old television broadcast of Peter Pan where there was a gal playing Peter Pan and, and Tinkerbell died. Okay? Tinkerbell died and she was like in a tree stump and it was actually just a light bulb. But she was like this like slowly flickering light bulb in the tree stump and, and, and Peter Pan looks at the camera and says, oh no, Tinkerbell is dying. We need to help her. 
If you believe in Tinkerbell, please clap your hands. And, and so, like, as a little, a little kid, I was like, okay. And, and she goes, it's working. Clap louder. Clap harder. And then, so, across America, there's a bunch of stupid children clapping at a television, thinking that they're going to turn that light bulb on more. Right? And sometimes we see Jesus like that, that we should believe something about him. But really, honestly, he's real whether you believe in him or not. He's moving whether you believe it or not. Because he's a real person. He is actually real. And his reality should change our reality. And this is how it happens. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, I'm skipping. Here we go. Then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I have to mention it every time. I think the King James says, He stinketh. He's been dead for four days. He's actually really dead. He's not just kind of dead, or mostly dead. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And here we see his reality bursting into theirs. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I say this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. Remember, he said that. He said, this is happening so you can believe. And so when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44 says, the man who had died came out, which is the most disturbing sentence you can read in nonfiction. The man who had died came out of the tomb after four days. He is defying every expectation. He is defying every concept of reality at this point. This is impossible, what's happening right here. There's no, no, no more lost cause than Lazarus four days in the grave. Yet, it says, the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen and strips. Or linen strips. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. That's the real Jesus that we serve. That's who he actually is. He is the kind of Jesus, the kind of person that says to dead men, Stand up and get out of your grave. Stop wearing those grave clothes. You're not dead anymore. That is the reality of Jesus. And that is the central part of what we believe as Christians. It's Jesus. And so I want to ask you, I asked it earlier, but I'm going to ask it in a new, in a new way. Where are the Lazarus in your life? What are the things that you have said, there is no hope? I will not say that Jesus is going to raise them all up. 
I will not say that Jesus will make it all better. Because again, remember, Jesus has a plan and sometimes no one else knows what's going on. But I will say that we do serve a God who loved us so much that he actually came to earth, took on real human flesh to share our suffering, and then gets to tell dead things that they get to be alive again. That's who he is. That's who your Jesus is. So where are the Lazaruses in your life? What are the things that you have given up on? No matter how much it hurt, you said, nope. It's past hope. I want to encourage you that Jesus, he's real. And he does real things. And he will always defy our expectations. But he's real. Let's pray. God, I just thank you uh, for your son that you love us and that you <clears throat> showed it. Jesus, you didn't just say it, you showed it. And you showed it by your suffering, by your sharing life with us. Jesus, you showed it um, by coming to life again and promising us that life. So Jesus, as we go on into the Easter season, as we rehash these themes... Lord, may they not sound old and broken and rote. But Lord, I pray that, that our hearts would come alive at your word. Like Lazarus' heart came alive at your word. Lord, I pray that your word would help us to see your love. So Jesus, this week, I pray that you would help us to follow you wherever you go. To know that you truly love us that you truly share with us in our suffering and in our experience of evil. But Lord, you have overcome. And we're grateful for that too. In Jesus' name, amen.